بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله والصلاة والسلام على رسول الله وعلى آله وصحبه ومن ولا Dear brothers and sisters, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh and uh, uh, welcome to this very special event uh, speaking about a subject that has been dear to my heart for many years since I was a youth um, and that is about the life and the lessons from uh, Umar al-Mukhtar May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, grant him Jannat al-Firdaus al-A'la uh, when I was looking at this subject, uh, it reminded me of a time when I'd gone uh, to Libya and uh, the, the, the time when I went to Libya was during the uh, so-called uh, Arab Spring and uh, uh, I was with Sister Yvonne Ridley and her husband. We'd traveled from Egypt and were going into Libya through the um, Saloon crossing and then entered into Libya, into Eastern Libya, uh, and uh, then went over into several cities, including Darna, including uh, Tobruk and Benghazi. And I remember coming to this point at the, in, in the vehicle, uh, Sister Yvonne and her husband were, were in the back asleep, but I was in the front with the driver and the driver told me that we are now uh, coming to this bridge. And just before this bridge was a place called Wadi Al-Kuf. And Wadi Al-Kuf, um, I knew instantly from the film of the Lion of the Desert. And this is the, the film about the life of Omar al-Makhtar made by Mustafa Akkad, who also made famously the film, The Message. And uh, lo and behold, we saw in the distance, the caves, the famous caves where Omar al-Makhtar uh, hid with his Mujahideen or rather uh, had um, bases with his Mujahideen as they uh, went out and attacked the Italians and uh, came back. And this place still to this day is known as uh, Kahf, uh, Omar al-Mukhtar. And it is uh, important that I said that this was effect affected me when I, was, uh, when I was young. When I was young, I saw the film, The Lion of the Desert, and it was made in the early 80s. Um, and this film was so profound. The filmmaker was meticulous in ensuring that it is, uh, that the film is um, completely authentic to the point at which he, he spoke to many people who were around at the time of Omar Mukhtar's uh, campaign against the Italians. And it is thus that I want to introduce you, uh, not to the film, but to the story that was told um, separately from two different sources. I've looked at two sources. One is uh, Sheikh Ali al-Salabi, and he looks at it from a very Islamic source. And then the other is from two Italian sources who've written a book called Omar al-Mukhtar, The Italian Reconquest of uh, of Libya. Um, so I want to go into the bit of the background before we go into the story of Amr al-Mukhtar himself and uh, his jihad against the Italian occupiers. Um, the period of time, it's important that we remember that this is, um, this is uh, around the time, uh, 1911, is when the Italians come into uh, what they call Cyrenaica, uh, and that is uh, their version of Eastern uh, Libya. They come into that part of it and they start to occupy it. And, and this is during what a period as, as known as the Ottoman-Turkish uh, War or the Italo-Turkish War, uh, rather the Turkish-Italo uh, uh, War. And during this war, um, an individual that you all know of, Mustafa Kemal Ataturk, uh, he's not called Ataturk at the time, um, organized the Turkish fighters and the Libyan fighters and they actually defeated the Italians at the famous Battle of Durna. Now, 
I remember when I went to Darna, it's, it's very famous because Darna is a place uh, where they have this mosque. It's known as Masjid al-Sahaba. To this day, it's believed that around 70 of the Sahaba of Rasulullah um, actually came there. And amongst them um, was Zuhair ibn Qais al-Balawi. Um, and these were Sahaba who came under the leadership of Uqba bin Nafi' who um, was uh, who brought Islam to that region. And that region in itself uh, was primarily dominated by Berbers. Uh, and prior to that, uh, the Romans had occupied it and the, and the Byzantines later. And eventually the Muslims came uh, under the leadership of Uqba um, bin Nafi' who was the, the nephew of Amr ibn As, uh, the uh, companion of Rasulullah And uh, when this, when we come to the period of the Ottomans, um, the Turks are very engaged in Libya. And you see even to this day, there's a strong relationship that's a historical relationship that's between the, um, the Libyans and the Turks. And that goes back to the time of the Ottomans. Um, despite the fact, eventually, um, when uh, Mustafa Kemal and his soldiers and others uh, organized battalions against uh, the, uh, the Italians, and defeated them, the Italians came back with heavy naval and aerial firepower. Remember the air forces of the world had just started. In fact, the Italians had started to use, uh, in Ethiopia, they'd used mustard gas. And that was of course, uh, as you know, a nerve agent uh, designed to, to, to damage people's minds and heads and breathing. And so despite this victory that uh, uh, the Libyans and the Turks had against the Italians, um, th they couldn't face this firepower. Even so, 6,000 Ottomans remained. This is the period of around six, uh, 1911 and fought a guerrilla campaign with the Libyans against over 140,000 Italian Christian invaders, as they called them. Uh, and that same year, um, the, the, the Ottoman soldiers, the Ottoman guerrillas, killed over 500 Italian soldiers. And in response to that, the Italians began a brutal campaign of murdering um, civilians by the thousands going from home to home and setting fire to each place, including mosques. And even one was reported that there were over a hundred refugees inside one mus masjid and that they burnt everybody alive. So the brutality of the time um, clearly comes through in the actions of the Italian occupiers. And remember the Italians were just doing what uh, the other nations of the world were doing at that time, occupying, and uh, colonizing different parts of the Muslim world and the rest of the world. And this was also a time of resistance. It is important, just as much as we say that this is a time of colonization, it's a time of resistance. And for the Muslims, it's a time of jihad. And jihad in its pristine sense, because in today's world, I remember recently somebody said to me, um, that when I said, I'm gonna be talking about the life of Umar uh, al-Mukhtar, and they said, oh, was he an anti-colonialist? And I said, yes, but that's not the term he used or his people used to describe themselves. They very clearly described themselves as doing jihad in the sake of Allah, for the cause of Allah, and that they were mujahideen fighting uh, occupiers and um, uh, crusaders. Um, and so this is, this is the, the backdrop. Um, when World War I happened, you know that the Ottomans took the side of the Germans and Germans were eventually defeated. And as a result of the Ottomans um, being connected to that, they lost a lot of their land also. 
and that included Libya. And it also emboldened the um, Italians to come in and begin what's known as the pacification of Libya. A, uh, a, a, I guess that's a euphemism for uh, carrying out what was, what was to become one of the worst genocides at that time. And it is important that we, we understand this term because we're talking now today is the 25th anniversary uh, since the massacre of Srebrenica, um, where over 8,000 Muslims, unarmed Muslims, uh, men and boys were shot, were killed uh, by the nationalist forces of the Serbians, um, the Bosnian Serbs. And we remember it this day, but it's important that we remember that there have been attempts at and actual genocides going on uh, around both before and after. And this was one of them, as I will explain, inshallah, as we go on further. Uh, what's important also is that one of the movements, the, the key movement inside um, Libya that was fighting against, that was uh, spearheading the fight against the occupiers, the Italian occupiers, was the Sanusi order. It's a Sufi order, an order of um, Tasawwuf, uh, who had an order that uh, was designed and came into place to practice a particular uh, um, way of Islam to reform people's ideas and views, uh, especially because of the influx of uh, Western ideolo ideologies that were destroying people's minds and their connection to Islam. And we often connect Sufism in our day-to-day -day with pacifism, that it's a sort of uh, a way to abstain from the world and not to be part of daily, uh, the, the daily rigors and difficulties of life. But my, everything that I've researched has shown me that, that during that period, it was actually the Sufi movements across the Islamic world that put up the fight and they fought at every level, wherever they were, whichever part of the world. And some of the examples I want to give you is Sheikh Abdul Qadir al-Jazairi in Algeria fought the French until he was captured. Um, but his, his fighting and his war against the French became a rallying cry for later liberation movements um, that exist to this day. Imam Shamil uh, in uh, the Qawqaz region or in the, the region uh, today is, uh, that's known as Chechnya and Dagestan and so forth is famous. He's known as, as, as uh, the Falcon of the Caucasus fought against uh, Tsarist Russia and continued to do so until the last. Um, Muhammad Ahmed al-Mahdi, uh, the movement of the Sudanese who fought against uh, the British and defeated uh, uh, Gordon of Khartoum and uh, uh, and the British themselves faced one of the biggest defeats in their times during the, 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 uh, the occupation, the colonization of that region. Even Churchill fought in that campaign later against the Mahdi's forces. The Kurds and the Arabs were gassed by the IRAF in Iraq in the 1930s and the first use by the IRAF of, of, uh, uh, of their forces. So there were always movements. Three Anglo-Afghan wars took place in which the Brits, uh, British, uh, British uh, forces were repeatedly defeated. In um, uh, Morocco, you had Amir Adil Karim al-Khattabi, who defeated the Spanish in Morocco. In one battle, one famous battle, he killed over 16,000 enemy troops. And to this day, um, he, his tactics are studied uh, particularly by uh, uh, people from left-wing guerrillas and so forth. And famously, Ho Chi Minh, Che Guevara, all used his battle tactics um, and learned from them. So the Sanusi movement, it was a Sufi-orientated movement, but it was, for, it was revivalist. Its founder came from Mecca. He wanted to revive Islamic thought and politics, and they continued to fight, first of all, the French, who had occupied and colonized the Sahel regions, the, uh, sorry, the Sahara region that included uh, southern Libya, Chad, Niger, and all this region there. 
to this day, some of the Chad uh, and Niger are French speaking space, uh, places. And to this day, they have presence, military presence, um, keep recurring, connected to that historical uh, involvement there. So the Sanusi movement was fighting against them. Uh, simultaneously, they also fought against the British in Egypt and in Sudan, and they did it under the banner of Mujahideen and Jihad defending the Islamic lands. And again, so for us to understand this, that the Sanusi movement was one of the uh, movements of Sufi orders um, that was around the world fighting occupation. Um, and in, essentially, if you think about it, the Sanusi movement was fighting on all fronts against uh, powers, uh, the, the strongest powers of the world. And they had small numbers of weapons and horseback riders and uh, soldiers, but they, their tactics were to hit and run and they were uh, guerrillas essentially. Um, but they also took part in set piece battles, which set them out against, uh, set them separate from others because facing on a, a mechanized modern army with just your, your hit and run tactics was, um, was unheard of really, uh, yet they did take part in such battles. Um, the term used in 1922 when the fascist government of Italy came into power, remember that we talk now about fascists, the, the rise of fascism, the uh, anti-fascist league, anti-fa and so forth, but the real anti-fascists was the Mujahideen because the first place where the fascists really showed that tried to uh, enforce their, their views and their beliefs and their strength was on the land of Libya and in Barqa in particular, which is Eastern Libya or the, the Jabal Akhdar uh, region. And there they came and started to, to do what was known as uh, Reconquista of Libya, which is the same terminology that was used by uh, Ferdinand and Isabella when they tried to reconquer or call it the Reconquista of Spain against the, the Andalusian Muslims. And so the same language, they called it Reconquista. And bizarrely, they said, this is because 2000 years ago, the Romans had occupied uh, Libya, which is true. It was occupied by the Libyans, therefore, um, uh, now they were coming back 2000 years later to do the reconquista. And we've already heard that kind of language before, not too far in, um, uh, in the Levant, let's say. So the Sanusis as a movement were not only fighting the fascists, subhanAllah, when the World War II broke out, they continued to fight alongside the British against the Nazis. So these Mujahideen, these Libyan Mujahideen were fighting not only the fascists, they were fighting the Nazis, and they continued to do so until 1943, when the eventually the famous battles of Tobruk and Al-Alamin in Egypt, um, uh, the, the Italians and the Nazis were thrown out, and uh, history again was, was written. Uh, more than 250,000 of the Sanusi movement over, the, over these years of fighting were killed. Um, the fascists, when they came, they began to arrest the scholars, tortured them, closed the masajid and the centers of Islam and put them into concentration camps. And that's something we're going to go into a bit more detail because it's relevant um, to, to us. So going to the story of Omar, uh, Omar al-Mukhtar, his name is Omar al-Mukhtar Muhammad ibn Farhat. He was born on the 20th of August 19, 1858. He was the, from uh, in the Dafna village in, in the Batnan area of the Jabal Akhtar. It's a beautiful region in eastern Libya. Uh, and uh, as I said, he, he, he came from that region and remained in that region uh, until his death. 
uh, Sudan, as, uh, sorry, as um, Libya borders many countries, including Egypt, Sudan, Chad, Niger, Algeria, Tunisia, and in the North uh, Mediterranean. Uh, it's uh, a vast country, um, mainly desert to the south, but the cities along the north, especially in the eastern side, as I said, are, are very beautiful, very lush, um, but also uh, places where guerrilla warfare uh, was possible for the Sanusi order and, of course, for Omar al-Mukhtar, who um, began his jihad there. Omar al-Mukhtar was born from a poor household and uh, he learned Islam from an, early, uh, from an early age. He was very young when his father died on route to Hajj and he was put in the care of Sheikh Hussein al-Ghariani. And uh, Sheikh al-Ghariani talks about him and says that this man was always, Omar Mukhtar, even as a, as a young man, uh, he was always in a state of wudu. He never missed Salat al-Duha. He always prayed to Salat al-Tahajjud. He slept little, and he was known to recite and uh, finish reading the Quran at least once a week, even up until his Shahada. Uh, his teachers and students, they recognized his qualities, his intelligence. He was serious. He was firm. He was patient. Uh, he understood the tribal links and connections and the, inter, uh, the, uh, the interchanges between them. He understood important events and dates. He understood uh, the various customs. He understood geography crucially about the movement, about uh, um, where the rivers, mountains, uh, seas, uh, different connecting uh, trading routes and points were. He understood all of them very well. He understood what were good positions and places for ambush, good positions to retreat and to hide, uh, where to get uh, provisions from. He understood uh, livestock and which livestock would live in which place and which could he could move with him and which had to be remain in one place. Um, he even understood the diseases and how to deal with the types of diseases that were uh, prevalent within the desert and he was known to settle disputes. Uh, he, he understood all of that very well and he crucially understood the, the desert terrain very well. There's a um, you know that, as I said, the film about him is called The Lion of the Desert, and that's the nickname that he has, that uh, Asad al-Sahara. Uh, and there's a story about him that, that they were on a trade route. And traditionally, what they would do is that uh, if they expected, they expected lions would come along so that they, they would keep one camel behind, a weak camel, a, a, uh, a camel that wasn't able to do the journey, perhaps. And they would leave that so that the lion would eat that and leave and leave the rest of the, the caravan train. When... Uh, they asked Umar, uh, Umar al-Mukhtar to take part in this. He refused. He said, no, I will not do that. I will not give away an animal just like that. If the animal, if the lion comes, I'll fight it. And indeed, a lion came and he fought it and he, and he shot and killed it. And when they asked him to, to, uh, to talk about, to praise, to, to boast about what he had done, he said uh, simply, this is nothing to boast about. I didn't even shoot the animal. I, and he quoted the verse, and you never shot when you shot. It was Allah who shot. Uh, and that he quoted from the verse in uh, Surah Al-Anfal. So these skills that uh, Amr al-Mukhtar had, they were preparing him for the life ahead. And uh, shortly after, uh, when he, he, he was involved in fighting the French in southern Libya and Chad, he, um, after one of the Sanusi leaders fell in battle, he took up the banner and from that point he became and started to become somebody recognizes for his military skills and his leadership skills. Uh, 
in one of the letters he wrote, uh, he was once, uh, Sharif al-Ghariani, the one who'd been who was teaching him, um, was asked to mediate with the Italians um, and to, to mediate between two different groups. And he felt that uh, Omar al-Mukhtar might just uh, get involved in that and, and uh, maybe give up. So Omar al-Mukhtar's response was, we, yani the Mujahideen, have no task but to fight the enemies of Allah and on our land. We are not afraid of fighter aircraft of the enemy, nor their cannons, their tanks and infantry. And he went on and said, we are not worried even if uh, about the wells and the crops that they have poisoned. We are amongst the soldiers of Allah and the soldiers of Allah are, vict are vict victorious. Of course, what he was talking about victory here is that Ahad al-Husnayn, as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Ahad al-Husnayn we know is imma nasr or imma shahada, that they are either victorious or they are killed. And both are victories. Both are regarded as success by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Um, in 1911, Omar al-Mukhtar went to study in uh, the Zawiyat al-Qusur, and it's important that we understand that Zawiyat, that the Zawiyat were places for um, uh, religious uh, and spiritual learning, and they were uh, dotted all around the place, and this is where the, uh, the Sufi order of Sanusis um, had their students to learn and so forth. And he went and enli en enlisted, um, he began to seek, um, as Allah subhanahu says, Harrid al-Mu'mineen al-Qital, invoke the believers to come and fight, uh, uh, to fight against the Italians, because now the Italians had begun their campaign of occupying um, Eastern Libya. And as I said, in 1911, they were fighting alongside Turkish soldiers um, against the Italians. So these were Turkish soldiers who had left the Ottomans, the Ottoman uh, Khilaf, as it were, had withdrawn, but still some soldiers re remained to fight to become part of the resistance, the guerrilla resistance. And um, so he did that. And he, in, in one occasion, he and around 400 uh, of his foot soldiers and mounted men um, attacked the enemy. For he first hid amongst cornfields uh, and then they attacked the enemy from, from a, a strategic point. The Turkish officers who were present, they admired him so much. Uh, and they said that he's somebody, it seems like he's just walked out of military academy at the highest rank. Uh, in the tactics that he used. Um, throughout his campaign, the Italians, they kept on trying to offer Omar al-Mukhtar money, land, title, and that's something you know that we often hear about people who are uh, presented with this same uh, fitna, as it were. Uh, and if this even happened at the time of Rasulullah when uh, Kaab ibn Malik, the famous Sahabi, who um, made the mistake of not joining the Ghazwat al-Tabuk, not, not going on the expedition to Tabuk, um, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, uh, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa told all the companions not to speak to them, to boycott them until a verse is revealed uh, that eventually exonerated them. They were approached by the enemies of Islam and asked to join them. So this type of thing of the enemy asking you to join them, ask, offering you money, offering you position, offering you rank and so forth is not something new. But Umar al-Mukhtar's um, words and response to that uh, really tell what he was, uh, what he felt. He said, whoever tries to change my faith or direction, Allah will disappoint them. I seek refuge in Allah from becoming an agent for the Italians and giving up fighting. And when he left, he, he left uh, to go to Egypt for a while to gain more support because Egypt was an important place where the Sanusi order had support 
uh, and they got um, finance, food, people coming from Egypt. So it was one of the routes where they had some support. Uh, in one, one of these uh, visits to Egypt, some, some of his people, some of the elite, uh, they tried to dissuade him from returning to jihad in the eastern uh, region of, of, uh, of Libya. And he replied to his own people, anyone who said such, such words to me is indeed my enemy. Jihad is an obligation. It is not a favor and it is not for the sake of the people, but for Allah alone. This is Omar al-Mukhtar. Remember now, when he began his jihad, he's around 20, he's around uh, 50 years old. And he's, uh, you know, I, I, I'm just over 50. And you start thinking at this age about how to settle down properly. And he hasn't, he's just about getting started. He's just getting started in his, um, in his path. His path that he knows where his path's going to take him. He knows for a fact that they can't defeat the Italians. The Italians are a world power, but he knows which direction he's going in and he won't swerve from it one iota. He began first using hit and run tactics against the Italians and he frustrated their attempts to control the region. So they tried to have bases and enforce their laws, enforce their, um, uh, their presence in that region. And Omar al-Mukhtar kept on frustrating them everywhere they went. Wherever, they wherever, in fact, it's famous of him, they said that he wouldn't stop one military campaign without starting the next one. So it was continuous for him. It was constantly on the move. In fact, one of the reasons why it took them 20 years to even uh, to be able to catch him was because he was constantly on the move. And remember, this was a man that by the end of his, his jihad against the, the Italians, he was 73 years old, but he didn't. Um, let that get in his way. Uh, even as a military commander, uh, his, his ability to instill love in the people uh, was matched just by, by his ability to, to fight against the enemy. Uh, and as a result of this, the people, the villages, the locals, the tribes kept on supplying him with soldiers, with bases, with provisions, with food, with um, information, uh, throughout this beautiful, as I said, it's a beautiful region called Jabal al-Akhdar. Uh, if you ever get a chance to visit it, um, you, you'll see why. Um, and he launched so many offensives uh, that, it, that now he became national news in Italy. And Omar Mukhtar and his movement was, uh, was now the, the main enemy of the fascist government of Benito Mussolini, who now came into power in 1922 or so, and it became their primary goal to destroy the Sanusi movement and to get rid of Omar Mukhtar. Wherever they happened to go, they'd often find either Omar or his Mujahideen, because it wasn't just him doing the fighting. There were different units that he was uh, controlling around Eastern Libya that he was telling to uh, and ordering and uh, supporting and guiding and directing. So he was constantly on the move either, either to attack the enemy or to, uh, to check on his troops around, dotted around the different parts of Eastern Libya. Uh, in 1927, there was a, one of the, the heads of the Sanusi order, he was captured. And um, at the same time, this now, this person, his name is General, uh, General Rodolfo Graziani. Um, he came and was appointed by the fascist regime uh, to start his marches from Tripoli, which is all the way in the west, 
and then uh, moved to a region called Al-Jufra, which is in central Libya, uh, with the aim of getting to the east, to the Jabal Akhtar, and capturing that entire region. And so um, that next year, eventually, after he'd taken Al-Jufra in, cent in central uh, Libya, uh, Graziani came to the Jabal Akhtar region, and he found Umar and his Mujahideen waiting there. Um, one of the first defeats that Graziani's forces faced was in uh, the Black Mountains area uh, and uh, the, the Jabal al-Aswad re uh, region, where the battle raged for about five days. And just so you have an idea of who's fighting whom and who has what, the Libyan Mujahideen have, um, you know, one-on-one Lee-Enfield Lee rifles that are kind of um, breech loading. So you put the bullet in, you cock the gun, you fire, you reload again. And, and that's how you do it. Uh, that's pretty much it. That and some, uh, some handguns. And that was it. That was all they had. They didn't have any heavy machine guns. They didn't have aircraft. They didn't have cannons. They didn't have um, uh, mobile machine guns. They didn't have uh, armored vehicles. All of those things the Italians had. So they were heavily outnumbered and that firepower was so great in the favor of the Italians. Uh, and yet what they had on their side was knowledge of the land. What they had on their side was maneuverability. They rode on horseback. They disappeared into the desert and into the mountains. And most importantly, their belief in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that they were fighting for the right cause, for the right reason, and that they only had a nasr or shahada ahead of them. The Italians, they, every time something happened and is normal in, type of, in, in, a, in a military conflict, that when the, the power suffers a defeat, they seek revenge. And this was no different. And so what they started to do is they started to um, place pressure and capture uh, family members of the Mujahideen and um, torture them and abuse them and so forth. Uh, and that continued and went on uh, to the point at which uh, it became even worse for the, uh, for the Libyan Mujahideen. And they had to keep moving again and again and again, and sometimes make decisions as to whether their actions may, may affect their family members. Sometimes they had to move their entire uh, uh, tribes and clans uh, to a different place. Uh, in several battles, and subhanAllah, this reminds me of the Prophet Sallallahu uh, and many of the Sahaba in the early days, they, they dug trenches around their towns, they divided their troops according to tribal affiliation, and essentially that, what that did is, in, on the one hand, it allowed the command structure to operate in, in, in a very fluid way, but it also allowed sort of a, um, a, a positive rivalry in that who might be able to do more in the, uh, uh, in the battle against the Italians. So this, this was a tactic, subhanAllah, an ancient tactic used by Rasulullah himself and the Sahaba. Uh, the battles in some of these cases were so intense that the Libyan Mujahideen would carry damp cloths with them because their guns would become um, burning hot from the amount of firing they were, they were doing. Uh, so they'd use the damp cloths to cool them down. And some other fighters actually carried two rifles they'd fire one and then they'd uh, let it cool and then fire another. So there was constantly, they, they were constantly firing and um, not having to wait for the gun uh, to, to cool down. Uh, 
one example of one of these battles that was so intense, over 200 were, were martyred. And uh, as a result of this, again, Omar was very versatile. He understood uh, and very adaptable. He reorganized his tactics again to minimize, casual, minimize casualties. So he made his groups into even smaller groups and they dispersed even more. And um, instead of being sort of large, as I said, more set piece battles, they disappeared, they dispersed um, and hid. And the tactics they use, and, and uh, one tactic I've read about is, is, is it's seen in the film, and that is they, they actually dig themselves into the desert and hide under the sand. And when, as the approaching forces come, uh, there are other soldiers, uh, which I think, uh, placed on, the, on the, the flanks. And the, the, the ones who are fighting uh, the Italians just appear out of the desert, literally jump out of the desert to surprise the enemy. So the tactics he was using um, were very brave and shocking for the Italians. This is Benito Mussolini. He's, remember, Benito Mussolini is, is the dictator. He's El Duce. He's, he's the... Um, he, he shocks Europe with his entire fascist movement and joins Hitler. This is what Mussolini said. We are not fighting wolves. We are fighting lions who bravely defend their land. And uh, many of Omar's, uh, Omar Mukhtar's uh, adversaries speak about him in this way, that he's, he's somebody that is, is um, we don't understand how to fight a person like this. Uh, but just as the same way, Omar Mukhtar also, and the famous thing about him, uh, as there are many, uh, applied constantly what he believed to be the principles of Islam. And during one engagement, um, th there were two Italian prisoners of war and uh, some of his uh, fellow Mujahideen said, we want to kill them. They kill us, let us kill them. And he responded famously, they are not our teachers. Now, subhanAllah, I remember when I came back from Guantanamo, one of the things that people used to say to me and say, how come you're not so angry on all of the Americans who did X, Y, Z to you? And I didn't know this particular thing at the time. It just came to me. I just felt that it was the right thing to, to say, that my oppressor is not my teacher. My teacher is the Prophet and his companions and the Book of Allah. These people are not my teachers. And I think it is right to say this. Uh, and then when I discovered that he said this, I felt, subhanAllah, somebody far greater than me said this in a far more precarious place. May Allah bless him and grant him gentle for those la'ana. Uh, the foreign ministry of the, uh, the Italian fascist regime said about um, Libya itself and fighting Omar al-Mukhtar, despite these heavy losses, um, we were told that we, there's lots of riches, uh, oil and gold and so forth to be taken. But we found nothing but bullets and sand and then nothing but the anger of the Arabs and the Muslims. Well, they got that part right. But with this in mind, the Italians, they sought a truce with Omar. Often they, they came back and forth and they, he, he did negotiate with them, but the first negotiation with them was to leave. And we've heard this recently with the, the Taliban, is that we will negotiate uh, as long as you leave. You withdraw first, then we'll talk. Um, but what he said in one of the discussions was that no Italians will, if, if, if there's too many agreement between us, no Italian will interfere in matters of religion or teaching Arabic as the official language. All Islamic schools will remotely remain open. All laws 
um, let's say that Libyans and Italians are not equal will be canceled. He also sought the return of all the goods and lands seized by the Italians and the right to keep weapons and have their own judges. And he also sought an amnesty for all political dissidents and the release of prisoners and the removal of military checkpoints. Basically, what he'd asked for was the Italians to have no say in his land. Um, they sort of agreed that with him in a, in a, to gain more time, but they broke the truce. And then what they did is that they uh, set up things called flying courts, which was these courts they did with summary courts where they quickly took a person who'd been captured and, uh, and used that as a way to uh, justify their execution. And they executed thousands of people in this way. They also what started to do something, and it's important we, we get this part now, is they started to set up concentration camps. This was well before, um, you know, uh, over a decade, almost two decades before any of the Nazi concentration camps. And uh, they started mass de deportations, re relocating entire tribes into concentration camps, about 15 concentration camps in all, five major ones and 10 other smaller ones. Up to a third of the population of Borka, which is the Eastern Libya, uh, died in these camps. Uh, the famous um, uh, activist Ilan Pape and an author estimates that half of the Bedouin population died through the disease and starvation. Other authors say, uh, other historians rather say that nearly a quarter of the population of Libya died. Um, again, Omar al-Mukhtar, seeing this happened, changed his, ta changed his tactics and um, used more surprise. But he knew that uh, the, the end was coming now because the pressure was really on from every direction. Um, the the uh, the uh, the person who was charged, as I said, to go and uh, deal with Omar al-Mukhtar and the Sanusis, uh, Graziani, said about Omar al-Mukhtar, he said, no matter how hard I try, this man will never surrender. Every time I make a plan, this man is a champion plan spoiler. He spoils every plan that I get, make. Um, but the pressure met, mounted. Some spoke about going to Egypt and... Uh, uh, hiding there and coming back to fight again. But Omar al-Mukhtar said, I will never leave Jabal al-Akhtar area. And he was very firm on this. And his firmness was so strong that it actually inspired others for them uh, to remain also. Uh, and then in one battle in 1930, the, the, the final battle he had, uh, Omar and his Mujahideen uh, were surrounded in an area where they had uh, come. There was only 40 of them, small number of them on horseback. And uh, they... The Italians got word, again, there were spies all around. Um, uh, they, they found his horse. So in this battle, they attacked him. They found his horse um, and his spectacles. Now, just after that, he wasn't captured here, but it was close to it. It was very close. And uh, Graziani said, I have today his spectacles. Tomorrow, I'm going to have his head. During this time, the famous author, uh, Muhammad Asad, who you, you may all know of, had, uh, who wrote the book, uh, um, The Road to Mecca and The Road to Medina, uh, was known as Leopold Weiss, who had become a very strong European Muslim thinker and convert. He came and actually met with Omar al-Mukhtar and showed his great support for him. And he said of him, he said, when I looked into his eyes, I saw the eyes of a man to whom danger was a daily meal. Um, it, Omar Mukhtar told him, uh, Muhammad Asad, that the struggle, the jihad, is slowly coming to an end with more aerial bombardments, with the uh, concentration camps, with spies, starvation, barbed wire, massive barbed wire fences going right across 
the length of uh, eastern Libya right to the Mediterranean. So they were trying to, uh, to, to, to block them in. Um, finally, uh, during a scouting trip um, to check on other Mujahideen positions, Omar al-Mukhtar and 40 of his horsemen uh, in the uh, Jabal al-Akhdar region um, came and were this time fully surrounded uh, at a river that they were at. And uh, they started to fight, started to fight off um, the Italians. Uh, but Omar al-Mukhtar was shot in his arm and his horse fell and, his, uh, and it fell and trapped his other arm. And the Italians, they came around and they captured him. The other fighters, they tried to rescue him, but they couldn't because they were outnumbered. And uh, again, they didn't know that they had Omar al-Mukhtar at that point, but um, unfortunately a traitor gave him away and said uh, that this is Omar al-Mukhtar, the leader of the uh, Mujahideen. He was taken in chains um, to uh, Benghazi, which was the main, uh, main city in, in Eastern Libya, and imprisoned in a small cell, isolated from the rest of the world. Uh, he would constantly recite the Quran, constantly be in state of prayer. And uh, he even told his captors, despite being in that state, imagine a state so powerful um, that has now brought you down and put you into chains and you know what's gonna happen next. He said to them famously that the jihad will continue even after his capture. And the famous words, We are a people that we do not surrender. We are, are either are victorious or we are killed or we die. And about his captivity, he said, as a cap uh, uh, he said, my arrest, my capture, is a confirmation of the Qadr of Allah. I am now in the hands of the fascist Italians, but Allah does as he wills, and I have never thought of surrendering to you ever. When they caught him, subhanAllah, he had still his rifle and six cartridges left, um, but they were taken. And uh, what remains is that thought of this man with his rifle on his horse, stern, old, brave, pious, standing in the face of the fascists. This is what the fascist leader, Graziani, who was known as the butcher of Libya, said about Omar al-Mukhtar. Omar was endowed with a quick and lively intelligence. He was knowledgeable in religious matters and revealed an energetic and impetuous character, unselfish and uncompromising. Ultimately, he remained very religious and poor. And even though he had been one of the most important Senussi figures, it didn't change him. Uh, if you read what uh, Graziani and all of the others say about Omar al-Mukhtar, it's quite amazing um, about the, 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 the grudging respect that they give him. And I just want to read to you a little bit about what happened on the trial date, which was on the 15th of September, 1931, um, when he is presented uh, to the court uh, what does he say to uh, the court? Uh, um, and they say to him, uh, you are Omar Mukhtar and you will be hanged. So do not be a coward before the gallows. And Omar Mukhtar replies by saying that uh, uh, simply whatever happens, it is the will of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And you know, one of the things that I saw in the uh, um, 
in, in the transcript of the discussion that he has at court. Uh, they ask him, uh, Graziani asks him, why did you fight the fascist government so fiercely? And he replied, because my religion commands me to do so. My religion commands me to do so. Not because I'm an anti-imperialist, not because of any other reason. My religion teaches me to fight those who persecute. Uh, they said, did you hope one day, look, I, I, I said to you this before, that he knew that he wouldn't be able to defeat them. Did you hope one day that you will be able to expel us from Barqa with your little means and your short number? He said, no, that was impossible. It was going to be impossible. And then so he asks him, what were you hoping to achieve? He said, nothing but to kick you out of my country because you are invaders. Defending our land is an obligation upon us while victory or loss is from Allah. I mean, brothers and sisters, subhanAllah, the more I read about this man, uh, and I've been reading about him for a few days, the more I'm, I'm, I'm in awe. And not only that, if you look at what happens at the trial, uh, and this again is from, this is from, this is not from a Salabi, this is not from the Libyan Muslim talking about him, this is from the Italian sources speaking about him. They charge him with, I think, over 15 different charges, all to do with rebellion. And he responds by saying one thing. He said, I never submitted to the Italian government. So I wasn't rebelling against, how can I rebel against somebody I never submitted to in the first place? Uh, one of the officers, they tried to, to, to uh, an, a military officer, of course, because he's in the military court, tried to defend him. And he affirmed again, uh, every single military action that they said he did, yes, I did it. I fought and I killed, I fought and I killed because it was my job to, my religion taught me to do so, etc." They asked him, did you kill any prisoners? Um, and, and apparently some prisoners were killed, but he said that's the only one that he said I didn't do. I didn't give the order for any prisoners to be killed. And that was in line with his belief that um, the prisoners should not have been killed. Uh, rather, they sh it's better to keep them to exchange. Um, they tried to make him out to be a bandit, to be a robber, to discredit him. It didn't matter because there were thousands of people now. Some of them forced, being forced to come to watch the execution. Um, but others just wanted to see their hero, their leader, uh, the sheikh of jihad for the last time. Uh, on, at 9 a.m. on the 16th of September 1931, um, many crowds were there. He walked up to the gallows reciting, La ilaha illallah, La ilaha illallah, Muhammad Rasulullah. Fighter jet, fighter planes rather, these uh, Italian fighter planes were flying overhead in jubilation, but also to, to let people know that this is now a complete victory. Our planes are flying above and your leader is getting executed below. But Omar Mukhtar's response to all of this, his last words uh, actually send a shiver down your spine and give you a great deal of sense of joy and hope. And he said, Ya ayyatun nafsul mutma'inna irji'i ila rabbiki radiyatun mardiyah. Oh, you soul that is at rest, Return to your Lord, well pleased, pleasing him. And the hangman's noose was put around his neck and he was hanged until he was dead. And so, so died the great lion of the desert, Omar al-Mukhtar, and his legacy lived on, continued to live on, continued to aspire. Many places around the Arab and Muslim world are named after him. Uh, I remember when I went uh, to Syria, there were movements, there was a, a Libyan movement came called Katibat Omar al-Mukhtar. When I was in Libya myself, I remember Erdogan came one day and this was before the, the revolution began and he was talking to the people with a translator and saying, 
uh, in Green Square or Martyr Square, he was saying, you are the sons. You, Antum Ahfad Umar al-Mukhtar, you are the, the, the descendants of Umar al-Mukhtar, the great Mujahid. And so th this person becomes so inspirational. Even people we don't probably wouldn't even agree with, like uh, Muammar Gaddafi uh, famously wore a photograph of Omar al-Nakhtar when he went to go and lead, uh, when he went to go and uh, meet uh, Silvio Berlusconi, I believe it was, uh, in the 1990s or 2000, uh, around the 2000s, just to show that this is our national figure. Omar al-Nakhtar's son uh, was actually part of or supported the revolution that happened in Libya and uh, that's one of the ways in which the revolutions tried to get kind of um, credibility to say, look, he's on our side. So his, his legacy lives on. And brothers and sisters, what I want to, to finally finish with is to say that the, the legacy of Amr al-Mukhtar and his struggle and his belief is a modern day um, example for us uh, of piety, of struggle, of care for the ummah, of refusing to change, of believing and doing what's right and being prepared for the consequence. Uh, if there's anything that comes from his life, uh, it's those words, Nahnu qawmun la nastaslim. Nantasir o namut. We are a people that we do not uh, um, surrender. We win or we die. And so inshallah, there end my talk about uh, life of Omar al-Mukhtar and I pray Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allows us to take what's good from it and to leave anything that's bad. Jazakallah khair, Brother Muazzam. Um, alhamdulillah, very inspirational and uh, a lot of comments have come in uh, uh, echoing that. Uh, so there are a couple of questions. So brothers and sisters, if you have any uh, more questions, uh, feel free to ask. Um, so I'll ask the first one, um, and, and you actually mentioned it at the end, uh, Brother Muazzam, <coughs> which uh, this is from Sister uh, Ibtihad. Um, she's Libyan from origin. She's saying, when the revolution began, the re recent one in Libya, uh, we were elated to find that Omar Mukhtar became the face of that revolution. But it quickly transpired that the claim was more nationalistic than Islamic. How do we uh, reclaim his legacy as a fighter for Islam and not just for li uh, Libya? I mean, look, one of the things, that's a brilliant question the sister poses, because I mean, we have to ask, as I said, this, this, you answer this question in how it's seen on, uh, today. Uh, many people recognize and, and value Omar al-Mukhtar's uh, struggle, and not all of them are Muslims, and not of them, all of them are Islamically inclined. Uh, so as I said, many of the nationalistic um, uh, and, and other movements, uh, leftist movements perhaps, or, or so forth, will say that he's a great resistance fighter but that's neither what he called himself. That's neither what his enemies called him. That's not what his people called him. And indeed, inshallah, we believe that's not what Allah calls him. Um, these, they describe themselves in very clear terms. One of the things that it's really important, you know, uh, Benito Mussolini, he's, he, he wanted to, he loved recording everything. So everything is recorded from that time, from the Italian sources. And the Italian sources say in great detail how this movement was about defending Islam, the land, of course. But as I said, the Sanusi movement was pan, was across. It, it stretched from Egypt to uh, Chad, to Niger, to the other places. And they inspired one another. I said the different Mujahideen leaders inspired one another across the, across the globe. Uh, and these movements, all of them, as I said, 
were not done under the banner of nationalism. They were done under the banner of Islam, whether it's uh, Aramil Khattabi in, in uh, Morocco, whether it's Imam Shamil, whether it's uh, the, uh, uh, whoever it is, Abdul Qadir, they all describe themselves in, the, in Islamic terms and we shouldn't do them a disservice by describing them in any other way. Um, there's a question from Yunus. Um, is it right to say that uh, Omar Mokhtar, he ignited the war against the modern regime? Uh, is similar, is follow-up to the, uh, the same question, I suppose. Um, I don't know if he ignited the war against the modern regime because there were other people, other groups around the world, Muslims and otherwise, um, who were fighting against uh, modern armies. Um, but it, it is right to say this is one of the first times that you we're having to, uh, you know, a, a Bedouin force has to deal with and um, take on a, a, a power that has an air force. So these were early air force. You know, when, when you think about the planes flying over Omar Mukhtar's head, uh, especially on the day when he's being executed, they're not jet fighters. They're, they're uh, you know, monoplanes or biplanes uh, and or triplanes with, th with three uh, sets of wings and, and one propeller. Uh, but this was advanced. And I, I also one of the tactics they used is that they would take people, the prisoners, take them into the back of the airplane, and there was, you know, the larger airplanes, and they would throw them out of the airplane. But that's another thing they would do to, to, the, to, to break their resolve. But this wasn't the, I don't think it was the first time there were uh, wars, um, resistances taking place uh, elsewhere in other parts of the world. Okay, um, a question from Ilyas um, uh, is uh, thanking you for the uh, uh, talk. Um, and the question he's uh, basically asking is that you spoke about jihad uh, as a very pure thing. Uh, as millennials, um, that doesn't include you and me, Muazzam, uh, we follow what happened in Iraq and Syria in the last nine years, and that doesn't look like pure jihad. What are the reasons for that? Could it be that jihad, uh, then Libya-Italian war, wasn't as well documented or as pure or what could the reasons be that jihad historically uh, is narrated as a pure thing, but we don't see such examples today? Um, I would say that there are such examples today. It just depends where you look. There will always be, and the Prophet said that there will always be a group of my people that will be victorious upon the truth. So it just, you're right in the sense of that's what we've seen in places, in some places in Syria and Iraq. Um, have been sullied by the actions of some or many uh, so-called mujahideen who behaved in a particular way that is completely anathema to the way that uh, Omar al-Mukhtar and other mujahideen behaved. Um, but there will always be people who believe in and are inspired by his way. And just as much they believe in his jihad, they also believe in his magnanimity, his treatment of prisoners, his belief that prisoners shouldn't be executed, his belief that uh, you don't transgress the rules of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That will always be the case and there will always be people who do that. So never judge Islam by the people, judge, judge the people by Islam, inshallah. Um, in terms of recommendations, uh, which Omar Bukta uh, book um, would you recommend for young people? Or anyone? Um, I don't know if any of them, I mean, they're hard reads, both are hard reads that I'm reading. I mean, I'll just show them to you now. This, this, is, this is one of them. Oh, oh, sorry, it's disappeared into nothingness. You've got to put it in front of your body. In front of my body. Okay, there you go. Right. Omar um, al-Mukhtar, this is by Sheikh Ali al-Salabi. And Ali al-Salabi is famous. He's a famous Ma'arikh, a, a historian who's written many, many books about history of Islam. So, but he writes it from a particular perspective, which is very, very Islamic, as it were. Um, and maybe some people might argue that it's not um, critical. 
then I also read this one, and this is much more critical, and it's from an Italian perspective. And uh, th so those are the two. But what I would recommend, if you haven't seen it, is to watch The Lion of the Desert. It is a very moving film. It is accurately done. Um, it's not one of those films where, where uh, it's just so much is left to uh, uh, as a poetic license or, or um, artistic license. It's, it, it, is, it follows a, a, the narrative that's based on proper sources, I think. Um, okay, question from Iqbal. Um, you focused on Omar Mukhtar as a resistance fighter against uh, colonialism. Could you say something about his organization and leadership of his community? Um, well, as I said, he, he was uh, known for his skills just as off the battlefield as they were on the battlefield. And that is his ability to unite people, his ability through his, um, I said that he, he settled disputes. Uh, that he understood the, the terrain, he understood food, he understood cattle, he understood livestock, uh, he understood all of those things, which were primarily, of course, for his ability to fight. But remember, let's remember also is that um, he was a teacher. And one of the things that he did when he was, for example, in Chad, uh, fighting against the, 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 the French, um, is that he would fight and simultaneously teach. And uh, he was, a, he was known as a Quran teacher. Is it, it, that's one of the things. The film actually begins by showing him as a teaching young children Quran. That isn't what he was uh, at that age. By, that, by the age of 70, he, he was, he'd already uh, been involved in fighting the, the, the French in the South. Um, and he was doing a lot more than teaching children Quran. But it begins from that point just to say that he was a simple man, which, which isn't correct. He, he, was, uh, um, he was deeply committed to Islam and not to, just to teaching Quran, um, but to actually building his community. And one of the things that he did to build his community was to go from point to point, from Zawiya to Zawiya, as it's called, or from uh, camp to camp, to build the, the, the strength and the morale of his troops. Um, but he was clearly, his primary thing uh, in, from, the, from 50 to 73 odd, uh, until he was 73, was to fight uh, a jihad. <clears throat> okay, um, can you just, you know, the second book, uh, Muazzam, you uh, showed, uh, can you just say the name again and also the author? Okay, so the name is Omar al-Mukhtar, The Italian Reconquest of Libya, and the authors are two, two Italian authors, Enzo Santarelli and Roman Raino, Rainero, um, what was it? Uh, and it's translated by John Gilbert, and it's by Dorf Publishers, Limited London. It, I don't particularly like reading this because it's a, uh, it's it, the script is very small, the, uh, the text is very small. Um, it, it, it's more of like a factual record, as it were. Uh, but the, the the part that I found very interesting is that uh, it's got the the scripted, it's got the transcript of the uh, of his trial, and what he says and what they ask him and how he responds. And I found that. You know, it places you right there on the day of the trial, and you can imagine him giving those answers. They're short, they're succinct. Uh, they don't, they're not pretentious. You can see that this man uh, believes in his cause, and he doesn't. He doesn't think he's speaking to his superior. He thinks he's speaking to uh, at least his equal. You can see that from from his responses. Um. <clears throat> There's a question uh, Mutiur is uh, asking, um, and, and that's to, uh, when you started your discussions about the Ottomans uh, and occupiers. He's asking, did the Libyans see the Ottomans as occupiers or did they accept them, uh, accept their rule? 
It's a really good question, you know, because one of the things I found in this book um, is they ask him, did you fight the Ottomans? And he says, sometimes. He says, sometimes. Um, so whilst it's clearly documented that the Ottomans and the Libyans fought together repeatedly against the Libyans, there's no doubt, of, against, sorry, against the uh, Italians, there's no doubt about that. They uh, fought guerrilla warfare together, even when the Ottomans left officially, uh, several Ottoman officers and soldiers remained and fought a guerrilla campaign with the Libyans uh, against the Italians. Uh, there were occasions when the Ottomans and the Libyans had disputes and would have fought with one another. And that's quite, I guess it's normal, um, uh, but it wasn't common. It wasn't often. Okay. Um, just before the uh, final questions, brothers and sisters, if you've got any more questions, please do use the Q&A. Um, uh, just the first book, can you just uh, uh, say the author's name again? The author's name is... Um, Ali, Dr. Ali Muhammad As-Sallabi, and those of you who, who know or heard of him, uh, he's, uh, he's Libyan, he's a Libyan scholar, uh, historian, and he's written many books on history. Uh, he's written books about the history of the Ottomans in, in Arabic, uh, on, on the Umayyads, on so many books on history. This one has been translated into English, and it's called Omar al-Mukhtar, uh, The Lion of the Desert. Uh, just, um, I, I suppose, uh, coming up to one of the final questions is how do we implement his legacies in our communities? Uh, you know, the lessons that you can take from uh, Omar Mokhtar. Well, the first thing is, do we know who this man is? Is it relevant? We do teach our children and ourselves about the Sahaba and the Prophet and the companions and the, the Rusul, the Anbiya, rightly so. But then when we come a bit closer to modern times, we, we find less, in, less and less individuals who we are able to refer to for points of reference, for inspiration and so forth. So one thing that I found, again, it, it, these subjects are hard. It's hard to read. You know, you can watch the film and it's, you know, kind of a bit glorious, but also there's a lot of pain involved. And it's trying to be able to absorb that pain and emerge from it with some kind of inspiration. And that's what these people did. They didn't, they, they weren't just glorious fighters, the way, even the image behind me, uh, a lion, a man with a, uh, you know, an old man with, with uh, robes around him, a, a horse in, in, behind in the mountains in the desert, very glorious. But there's a lot of pain involved. There's the, the pain of the, of the concentration camps. There's the pain of moving from one place to the other, the pain of not seeing your children perhaps for months and years on end. Perhaps uh, there's a pain of losing your relatives in battle as what Hamr to uh, Omar al-Mukhtar, he saw many of his relatives killed. He had to bury them. Sometimes he had to leave them behind for the desert to eat their bodies. So you've got to work through that pain and then understand why uh, the resilience of such a person should be an inspiration for us and should be taught to us. In Libya, he's a national hero. Um, but as the sister said, that when you make something Islamic nationalistic, you take it away from the rest of us. And what we need to do is to reclaim Omar al-Mukhtar by teaching him to Yemenis, to uh, Turks, to Malaysians, to Pakistanis, to Bangladeshis, and saying that this is part of our legacy. He is part of us. He's not Libyan, he's Muslim. And that's why he connected uh, to us. And he fought the Italians because he was Muslim. That's what he said on his tongue. 
He said, I'd fight you because Allah has told me to do so. And we worship the same Allah. Hey, Jazakumullah khair. Um, I think um, we've pretty much uh, covered all of the uh, questions. Uh, Jazakumullah khair for Sister Amina for le letting us know that Dr. Al Salabi's book is also available on Kindle, so uh, ebook uh, if, if you wish to do that. Um, just to let you know, I mean, there's some suggestions of other topics that uh, we can uh, cover. Uh, so, inshallah, uh, there was a suggestion there for Tipu Sultan. Our next uh, webinar is actually going to be on the 22nd of July to uh, discuss, um, it should be on your screen now, um, discuss uh, Bosnia and the genocide of Srebrenica. Uh, inshallah, Brother Muazzam will be uh, having a conversation with uh, uh, Brother Anwar Mafil, uh, also from CAGE. Uh, so uh, please do uh, look out for that. Um, we will send the details in the email that you use to register and obviously it will be on our website. And as going forward, uh, we will also be looking uh, to cover um, other personalities that we can take inspiration from, uh, like Dr. Afia Siddiqui. Uh, also, uh, people, Tipu Sultan might be one that we can also uh, cover. Uh, that, that was a suggestion. Um, and uh, others. And one of the requests we're getting quite a lot is uh, someone from the Uyghur community who's been uh, resisting the Chinese uh, um, oppression. Uh, maybe we can cover that. So inshallah, we will be looking at that. Um, okay, so the, a couple more questions has come in. Um, I think uh, what, one of the questions has uh, been asked twice, uh, let me actually ask you this, is did Omar Mukhtar coordinate his movement uh, uh, in, in terms of resistance with the other movements in the West, uh, uh, West uh, re region of the country in Libya? Yeah, that's a very good question. I've thought about that. Um, as I said, Libya is a vast country. Um, and to be able to make that kind of coordination cannot be easy, especially because the uh, the presence of the Italians was so much more pronounced and they, they'd controlled a lot more in Tripoli. That was the first regions that they take. They took, remember Graziani, when he came, he first established himself where there had already been uh, the previous Italian generals. And when the fascists came, they wanted to make sure that the East is, is, uh, is uh, put down. Uh, so my assumption is that the, the, the Italians had a stronger presence there I don't know enough about what resistance took place in the West. I'm sure there was some, uh, but uh, the answer to that is I don't know. Um, I, I haven't read it. I haven't read, uh, come across that kind of connection. But having said that, he, there certainly was a connection with other regions, especially in Egypt, uh, down to the south with the Niger, with Sudan, with Chad. And uh, there were definitely connections there. There were different Zawiyas there. There were Mujahideen units all around uh, who, and they did recruit from them. And that I did read. Okay, um, we, we've got actually a few more questions. So what I'm going to do, brothers uh, and sisters, is just extend the time for uh, another five uh, minutes or so. So just uh, quick fire questions, I suppose, uh, brother Muazzam. Um, one of them is, uh, what, why, what do you think we lack in the Muslim Ummah when it comes to this kind of legacies in talking about uh, this type of heroes, as it were? Fear. 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 If there's one word I could put it down, it is fear. Uh, and fear, um, fear breeds cowardice. Fear can breed, breed courage too. Fear can make you, uh, make you courageous. It can uh, make you stand up to the challenge, but it can also cause you to be a coward. And the Prophet ﷺ in a famous dua, he used to, when he saw a man in, in the masjid who asked him, Ya Rasulullah, overcome by grief and difficulties, tell me something. He said, uh, say this dua, Allahumma inni a'udhu bika min al-hammi wal-hazn. Oh Allah, I seek refuge in you from sorrow 
and grief and from becoming uh, you know wasting my time and and being lazy and from being cowardly and being miserly and cowardly and to be drowned in debt and to be overpowered by men and so the prophet mentioned uh, miserliness right next to cowardice and this type of cowardice, I think, is, is unfortunately, it's contagious, contagious for our community here. Um, and these type of examples of these type of individuals, reading them and understanding them and saying that, you know, the sister said, you know, it brought tears to my eyes that he's walking to the gallows and he's saying, ya You know, my heart shakes when I say those. My voice almost starts to shake. Imagine, would you be able to say something like that? And that's what, that's, the, that's what we need to tell ourselves. We need to remind ourselves um, about such, such responses to such, time, such times. Um, just, just related to that, I suppose, is um, how, how did you, you know, from what you understand, how did he manage to hold on to his deen in the face of such adversity? Because what, one of the fears, I suppose, is uh, that you're not going to be strong enough and, and you'll capitulate money, you know, uh, pressure, torture, all of these things. Uh, it's important. They did offer these things to him. And it wasn't just the Italians that offered it to him. It was also his own elite. So people remember I said when he went to, to Egypt, there were the, the elite offering, well, why don't you just stop your campaign now? And that's enough now and talk to the Italians. He was. He did meet with the Italians. He did talk to them. But what he told them was that Islam will be dominant, that you will not close down the Madaris, that you will uh, not force your implementation of teaching uh, Italian. Arabic language will be supreme amongst the people. Um, he called, for, he, he even said that our Mujahideen will keep our weapons. Everything that he said in the negotiation was mm. for the strength of his people. Um, and when we are now here and we see the governments trying to force upon us different things that are damaging to our community, damage to Islam, perhaps we take a page out of his book and say, he didn't, he was ready to talk. He was ready to discuss, but he wasn't ready to give away the core principles that would take away his people's and Islam's um, strength and sap it out. Because the Italians were coming along and saying that we have a far superior system of, of um, uh, administration, of civilization, and all of that stuff. So there was, a, there was a, an ideological battle of taking place just as much as there was a physical one. And he recognized that. And that's why, hand in hand, he ensured that um, his deen was, was complete. The mm. Prophet ﷺ that the best of you is those who learn the Quran and teach it. And that's what he used to do. Um, just another quick question. Is uh, his son, Umar Muqtasan, is he uh, involved in the uh, revolution in Libya now? He was in the early days. I remember seeing him. I remember seeing his images. He was definitely um, part of it. He came out and he said statements uh, in support of the revolution. I don't know where he is now. Uh, he's very old. Um, I, I did read that he was in Turkey. I'm, I'm not sure where he is. If he, I don't even think he would have remained in Libya the way it, it was after, unfortunately, the, the revolution uh, got corrupted and, and fell apart. Okay, final question um, on that point, actually. Uh, so Turkey is actually uh, in Libya helping one side of the conflict. Uh, can it be the continuation of the former presence in Libya, like during the Ottoman time? I can't help but to think that there's a connection. I, I can't help but to think that there's, when we see it from here, we think, what the hell's going on? It seems really confusing. And then when you look back at history and look at the historical connections, I remember when I went 
to Libya, it was in 2012, um, there were Turkish ships, even coming along, Turkish trade ships, massive uh, super tankers um, coming along, and they were trading with, and it means that I think that this trade links and these connections to Libya and between Libya and Turkey are very historical. Um, there is a, a huge number of Libyans now living in Turkey that even, even I, I'm aware of. Um, so there is a link between them. Uh, what the politics of it, I, I don't claim that I understand fully, but there's definitely a link, a historical link between these two countries, and it goes back to the uh, Uthmani Khilafah. Okay, um, I think we're going to uh, stop there because um, I, I know many of our uh, participants, um, they haven't had the opportunity to pray Asr uh, as well and uh, the time has come in. Um, Jazakumullah khair, brothers and sisters, for your time. Uh, and inshallah, um, as you saw, our next event is going to be on the 22nd of July uh, to cover uh, Bosnia. Um, if you want to keep up to date with the events that we are doing, I mean, on social media, do follow us on either Twitter, Instagram or Facebook but also sign up to our mailing list. Uh, you can do that from our website. Inshallah, after, um, in the next couple of days, we'll send you an email um, with details of the next event uh, with the email that you've registered. Um, so uh, on that note, uh, Brother Moazam, do you want to conclude the meeting, Inshallah? Just finally, I want to say this. Um, my brothers and sisters, you know, as I said, Omar al-Mukhtar was, was a great inspiration for me. Um, I went to Bosnia during the, um, during the war. And one of the reasons why that I went was, of course, for the aid effort. But I, I, I can't hide that um, I wanted to join the Mujahideen, and I did join them for a short time, but I joined. And uh, uh, that was to do with the defending the Muslim lands. And this period of time from the 11th, July, uh, from uh, July the 11th to July the 22nd, this entire period was the time it took for the Serbs to carry out the genocide, the massacre of the Muslims of just one town, Srebrenica. There were many, many other towns where lesser numbers were killed, but they amounted to around 150,000. And inshallah, next week, uh, please do join us to talk about this because it is a very important um, uh, page in our history. Again, one that some of you may not know that well if you're younger. And if you do, if you are older, then perhaps it will be a good reminder about um, what happened. So Jazakumullah Khair. Jazakumullah Khair. Um, just to clarify, it's not next week, it's the week after 22nd of July, inshallah. Um, so we'll uh, end there, brothers and sisters. Jazakumullah Khair. Subhanakallah, ma bihamdika, ashadu Allah, ilaha illa, anta astaghfiruka, wa tubi ilaik. Assalamu alaikum, everyone.